The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary. Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. to you from California with my co-host Timothy Saunders in Southwest Turkey and Kinthea, who's also here in California. Um, tonight's show is titled The Roadmap to Renaissance, and we have our esteemed guest Bruce Erickson. So before we get there, I'm sure everyone on the show knows that it's been a very tumultuous week. It has been one that probably will go down in history Tonight's show comes on the heels of one of the most disturbing days in American history. And this show actually isn't going to be about that topic. However, it's uh, something I can't really ignore, considering how it all is woven into what this show has been about since its inception. And that is the global, basically the global takeover, the pandemic being part of it, the takeover, the coup d'etat, of politics and uh, using medical technocracy to do so, uh, using a collapse of the economy. All of these things work together, the vaccines, all of these things come together. So although we can't go over it all, I grew up and I was always told, especially at the dinner table, to never broach the subjects of politics, religion, sex, or money. And with all of this going on, I'm going to have to, to put that aside. And actually, I'm very willing to talk about those things because we have pernicious medical experts assuring us that mandated vaccines will protect everyone in one side of their mouth talking out. And the other side, we have them saying, well, you know, the vaccine actually doesn't give you immunity and it doesn't really stop the transmission of the disease. So keep wearing the mask, keep doing everything we tell you, and take the vaccine too, even though it hasn't had any studies and it's purely a gigantic experiment on the human race. Not so experimental, if you ask me. They know exactly what it will do, and it's not to your benefit. So we've gone over these topics, and we'll come back to those. But at this time, we're looking at something where we have to really examine what we're seeing in, out in the world. George Orwell 
said, you know, truth is treason in an empire of lies. And right now, I think that that's a very apropos quote to think about. We have a time where there is such censorship and such strong resistance to the truth. And one has to ask, what's the benefit? Who benefits from suppressing the truth? Who benefits from suppressing our First Amendment rights? We can speak, but we can't be heard because we're silenced through fake stream media. We're silenced through social media. And it's to the point that even the president, regardless of your feelings on that, has been censored repeatedly, has had the Twitter accounts taken down, etc. But what I find even more amazing is I actually do listen to all sides of this. I listen to both sides because I find out a lot. Even if I don't agree with it, I find out a lot about the situation by listening to multiple sides of the same issue, which is what this show is really about. And what I found amazing is I watched a speech by President Trump, and then I compare the Facebook response from Mark Zuckerberg is saying the exact opposite. He's accusing Trump and taking down his account of saying something that just flat out was the opposite of what he said. And I look at that and I start to think, wow, you know, are we just being completely psyops? And I'd say, yes. <laughs> um, this The situation we have is so wild for our imaginations. I mean, who would ever have thought the day that you couldn't begin to trust the chief justice of the Supreme Court, one that won't even look at many cases, and then you realize that everything is so corrupt that you don't even know which side to look at. The thing is, is that it doesn't matter politically which side you stand on. It matters that the truth be told, that if there is indeed election fraud, which I personally totally see that there is, it's being suppressed. That information is not allowed to come out. And the question becomes, why is that information not allowed to come out? If it wasn't true, if it was just all made up, then it could come and be brought into the light and be proven untrue. However, there's this incredible suppression, this monopoly with the news, the media, and even to the point of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, which is indeed sad. As you know, I love the Constitution. I'm a big fan of constitutional law. And if you've ever listened to me for even a couple shows, you'd know that. The Constitution is not an instrument for the government to restrain the people. It's an instrument for the people to restrain the government, lest it come to dominate our lives and interests, which is exactly where we are right now. So I'm quoting that from Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry is my, I don't know how many greats, but grandfather. <laughs> I'm a descendant of Patrick Henry. I look at his writings now, and I think they have never been more appropriate than right now. Let me just read a few things. The eternal difference between right and wrong does not fluctuate. It is immutable. And certainly we have that right now. Right and wrong, good and evil, light and dark, it doesn't change. So I have to ask, why is it that one side, the controlling minority, is so hellbent on having us be suppressed, repressed, not be able to speak, to have one side completely muted, to the point that even the person who has the highest office in the land of the United States has been muted? On an international level, the situation is really important too, because 
whether you like the United States or not, it stands as a lighthouse for democracy. And I feel that if the kingpin of the United States goes down in democracy, then the whole world follows closely on its heels. It is, unfortunately, at this point, a situation where we have a global elite trying to get global control. So there is a reason that this country has been targeted, and we are experiencing a coup. And it's really interesting when we see things like what we saw on Wednesday, and we have videos, and we have all kinds of documented evidence, all kinds of it. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things. And yet none of that makes it to mainstream media. When you see the the patriots that are accused of the violence, and they're pulling these insurgents that were planted in there, pulling them off of the Capitol building, trying to stop the destruction. I find it really interesting that there was a press release already prepared from Nancy Pelosi. And she says about setting the Capitol on fire. It's like, well, gee, there wasn't a fire, but they were planning on having a fire. When in fact, it was the Patriots who stopped the paid agitators from starting the fire. So you start to see this and you go, wow, what's the truth? And this is where your discernment really comes into play to really look at everything, whether it be information on vaccines, whether it be the political things, whatever it is, whatever we're looking at. And it really, it's broaching all those topics I wasn't supposed to discuss at the dinner table. It brings up all of this and all of it needs to come through our minds and be questioned. People rarely can tell the difference between a lie and the truth, and yet they are confident they can, and so they are all the easier to fool. And that's so true. I hear people say, I'm the expert. I know. I blah, 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 blah. Well, they haven't looked at multiple sides. When I ask people about they're so sure about certain things medically, and I say, well, that's great. Okay. Can you show me a definitive and reputable medical study that backs your belief. And there's a silence. There's crickets. Because they're getting their information from the media. It's an opinion. Just like I'm giving you my opinion right now. This is my opinion about what's going on. It's not factual. It's my opinion. I expect our listeners, because they are, I think, exceptional, I expect you to do your own research. We put up a lot of stuff to let you form your own opinions. What we're here for is to present another side, another viewpoint. And so with that, I do want to present another viewpoint. In tonight's show, we're going to bring our guest, Bruce Erickson, along. And he is going to talk about some things to strengthen ourselves so that we can actually lessen this dependence on the medical technocracy so we can lessen our dependence on the government so we can think for ourselves. And he has been a forward thinker. So I do want to leave with a couple other quotes before I bring my uh, co-hosts in here to talk. One is, they tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with such a formidable adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be next week? Or the next year, will it be when we're totally disarmed, when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? 
Shall we acquire a means of effectual resistance by lying supinely down on our backs and hugging the diffusive phantom of hope? Until our enemies shall have bound us hand and foot. Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of the means which God and nature hath placed in our power. And really, we stand here at this time and we need to decide what we want. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but for me, give me liberty or give me death. So that's from my great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandfather, Patrick Henry. And with that, I'd like to bring in my esteemed co-hosts, Timothy Saunders and Kinthea. So what have you been thinking this week? Well, good evening, all, and uh, happy to be here. And Timothy, I'm happy you're here, too. <laughs> oh, boy, what a rocky road. What a rocky road. Because for me personally, I have family on both sides of the equation. And I've been sending them information. And there's always this, um, it's like we live in completely two different worlds because of the way the censorship is working. And I see that both sides think the other side is off their rocker. I mean, literally, that's how they respond. And I keep looking for the anchor of peace within that. You know, okay, we can love each other and still disagree. But sometimes a lot of people that I know, their identity is so wrapped into how they view something that they can't distinguish that. So it is a moment of a dance, shall we say. You you come to the point where you decide, well, are we going to continue this relationship or are we not? And so what it comes down for me is like a really deep introspection to examine what is my truth and how does that flow out and how can I share that in a loving way. And those that are in my life, they will either choose to continue to be in my life or they will choose not to be. But I am clear I'm not going to try to force my perspective on them. So I find this a time not only as a giant question mark for the country but it's a giant question mark for each each individual how we how we view our internal reality and i have really deep discussions with those who are close to me it always comes down to well if it were that way then it would be like this and i'm thinking well in the short vision it might be like that but there's also a longer vision so that's how I'm seeing things right now. Timothy, do you have a take on this or? Good morning. Well, it's it's Good very morning. early here. Good evening. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, it, it has been uh, a roller coaster for the first week of the year. Uh, I literally watch very little TV, actually not television, but in my life. But occasionally I indulge late at night. I, I watch something to sort of chill out and escape some usually sort of fictional, science fictional type drama type thing. I went to sleep in the middle of some show this week and I, and uh, in this show, literally sort of uh, the White House is being broken into, 
and so on. And I woke up the next morning and found that was actually happening in reality as well. Okay, not the White House, but I understand, you know, the official sacred monuments of Washington, D.C., the symbols of justice and truth and so on. And there it was, sure enough, in reality. And I think that we're living in a time where you know, reality and science fiction is almost not possible to discern the difference between the two unless you really look for the truth. And that comes back to what we talk about so often is it's so important to do our own research to understand where the reality lies. And I think before we come together, it is important for people to come together in an awakened state. And when I say awakened state, that's very different from what a lot of people would say is woke mentality. They're completely and utterly different planets, in my opinion. When I say awakened state, I often say, wake up, smell the coffee, whatever these other analogies we use. But it's so important to be awake enough to, as Anessa was saying earlier, when there is something on the television and the media and the newspaper, to look at both sides. It's not that somebody will be branded. Oh my God, this person is uh, reading this newspaper from, you know, China, or this person's reading a newspaper from uh, some other, you know, North Korea or whatever. It, it doesn't matter, in my opinion. The, the point is, it is necessary to see, as you say, Annette, multiple sides of every point in order to gain a clean and truthful perspective. And once people have come to that realization that it's necessary to do your own research, to come to your own conclusion, then they can come together and put those intents into something meaningful. So that's what I would kind of uh, like to say at the beginning. The other thing is that the quote that Annette, it's a very nice opening, by the way, Annette, I'm sorry the subject matter is in this direction, but it is what it is. The quote that you said about, are we weak? the English guard or British guard in our own home. <laughs> That's happening in the UK right now as well. Almost people, neighbors are snitching on each other over the Christmas period, New, New Year period. Oh, there's too many people in that house. Guards were being sent around. People were being literally forcefully pulled out of their homes during time of celebration by the police. And this is all supposed to be preventing people from you know, transmitting this invisible COVID-19 thing, okay? Some people seem to be going down with, but on the other hand, so many others are just victims of being branded as a positive test result. That's what I wanted to open with this evening. Well, we do have something happening, but it's not the thing that we're being told. In other words, it's being used as a tool for this oppression, for this erosion of our rights. And the truth is, is they're telling us, oh, the hospitals are so busy, the ambulances are lined up, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know what? I've, I've challenged a number of people, and every single one of them's come back with the same response, as well as I have done the same thing, which is drive to the couple hospitals that are closest to you. If you're in a metropolitan area, that's not hard to find three or four really close. And you can drive up there and find that they're a ghost town. So who's telling the truth here? You know, when they're saying the vaccine won't do this and it won't do that, but take it anyway, or the Trump protesters were violent, but then repressing the videos or even the unmitigated gall of censorship that's just unbelievable at this point and flat out lying, even though there's the, it's the hubris of lying when you know that the evidence is right there. In other words, I have side by side. Here's the speech. Here's the comment on it. 
and you can directly refute the one statement with the other. It's unbelievable. I think part of it is, is they're trying to confuse us so much with just throwing anything out there. And the truth is, people are falling for it. Ideology is merely a tool for the propaganda and mind control. So if you give somebody an ideology that they can lock onto and they feel like it's whatever it is, well, you're going to, I'm going to get this benefit or something from it. And then they'll just lock onto that and then they, they just can't hear anything else. And I think that's really what's going on. There's been so many things put out there for each version of it. And people are just kind of clinging to that and allowing their mind to be controlled. So we're seeing like a real eruption this week of all of this stuff coming forward. And it's, it is inextricably linked to each other. And it is this virus, not to say that there isn't a virus, but this virus is absolutely being used to promote this whole other idea of the global takeover, the global reset. And at this point, we have so much evidence of it, it's not even a question, but not if you're not looking at it. Well, it's also a kind of a self-perpetuating wheel as well. This week, there was, a, as you can expect, a number of press conferences from the puppet leaders in the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson lined up with some guy dressed up, uh, looks like he's about to go on some sort of military parade. And next to him, a doctor as well. You know, it's all the things you need to have a briefing. The doctor actually laid in, I don't know if actually he's a doctor, but he represents the medical opinion in the government. He became quite assertive that people should be reprimanded, you know, the first steps towards actually being sort of treated as criminals if they should dare think that hospitals are empty and if they should dare think that the vaccines don't work. I mean, he's speaking quite directly, which is not really very far away from saying, you know, the next step is if you actually say this, then you will be reprimanded. Right. So this, this clampdown is totally out of order. There's no free speech allowed at all. And what was interesting in the same interview, actually, is that some of the television and media presenters are starting to ask more awkward questions. I mean, finally, <laughs> finally, <laughs> don't know how many months it takes, but finally that, you know, maybe they are starting to smell a few green granules of coffee. But they asked Boris Johnson on live TV, what do you make of these people that are putting opinions forward that this pandemic is not justified and something along those lines. And he did the most unusual body language movement. His left hand went to his waist and sort of held himself as if he'd been injured. He sort of sidestepped left and right a few times. He then sort of brought his hands up in the air uh, in parallel and then sort of shook them away as if he was like throwing away two tennis balls at the same time. And then he answered the question. He looked pretty sheepish in the eye as well, I have to say. So clearly there's some process going on inside that little brain of his whereby he thought, now, should I try and hide from this question? Should I answer it straight on? Or should I just tell another lie? Which is what I think probably happened <laughs> to perpetuate the, uh, you know, the, the rotation of the big wheel. Yeah, there's plenty. I mean, we could go on all, all, all night about this topic. However, we do have an awesome guest who we're going to talk about completely different stuff because we had this schedule before all this let, let loose. And so we're going to go ahead and try to have a, a positive, happy show and uh, talk about what we can do. And by the way, I do want to say that one thing. Uh, there, There's many things out there that have been proven uh, outside of vaccines, outside of the toxic medicine, 
that have proven to be extremely effective with COVID. And there's also prophylactics, meaning you can take them in order to prevent. And they've had some, uh, ivermectin, for example, has had a 100% effective rate in, in preventing uh, healthcare workers from contracting it the, that are working with people that are ill. And yet this is really, really suppressed. The reason, well, it's, it's not going to make tons of money. It's a, a drug that's been around a long time. It is not with the agenda of Bill Gates and his eugenics. So we don't want to talk about that. We don't want that. We want to keep people in fear. We're going to use this virus, even though we have all kinds of ways to help people with the virus. So, again, you have to question this. We look at this and you go, well, you know, gosh, here's all these studies from all over the world and people are, are proving this and it's well documented and these are reliable, legitimate studies that are peer reviewed and everything else. And yet they're being completely suppressed. Again, the suppression of information in the information age. The only reason they've done that is because they know and have openly admitted that it's unenforceable. So if they kept everyone locked down over Christmas, they know that everyone's going to ignore it because you're going to go and see your family at Christmas. Of course you are. And they know that you've got 65 million people in the UK. You can't, you can't police 65 million people going to each other's houses for Christmas. You can't do it. There's not enough police officers. So what they've done to try and keep some kind of, you know, appearance of power is give us those days. So it's like, I know you're going around each other's houses, but we let you do it because that's better than keeping us locked down, us all doing it anyway, and them openly showing their weakness, which which they have. They can't enforce it. And, and the police chief, chief constables, has said as much that it's unenforceable. And so that's what I think people need to realize is that all these music venues could open, all these theaters could open, all these restaurants could open, all these bars could open, as long as they all opened because then it's unenforceable. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Cross my aching arms Body language clear yeah. Breathe my breaking heart Make my stand right here For action over hope Make my stand right here For action over hope For action Welcome back to the other side of the news. 
This is Kinthea with my co-host Timothy Saunders and Annette Driscoll. And tonight our wonderful guest is Bruce L. Erickson. The show is called Roadmap to Renaissance. I'm so delighted to bring on Bruce. His mission has been to help educate and create sustainable and healthy communities in order to generate a quality of life in harmony with nature. Because we as humanity share so much in common, our communities, we can learn from one another. And he encourages everyone to share ideas that work from around the world. He encourages communities to apply the best ideas to emerge in their own bioregions. He is of the mind that now is the time for all of us to address the critical issues of our time with the wisdom of open minds, open hearts, and a respect for nature. This is essential for the well-being of all, our biosphere, and to ensure we have a viable earth for future human generations to come. His career has been focused on sustainability and regenerative development. It's vast. I mean, I'm just going to tag a few items here. He's addressed the UN at the NGO Summit in New York. He's currently working with an international network of medical experts and nuclear engineers on how to best respond to the issues of Fukushima. He's part of an ongoing project, Mother Earth Media. It's a think tank and media production center. The focus is critical information, strategic planning, systems development, communications, and the implementation of research that's been going on for 40 years. He's a reporter for Tomorrow's Challenge for Japan and was requested as a senior advisor from the government of Japan. He's also on the editorial staff of Space of Love, and he's also participating in a workbook called Sustainable World Sourcebook, which is a Wisdom Council book. So uh, the list goes on and on. Bruce, welcome to the show. Such a delight. Welcome. Are you with us? Well, I'm I'm very glad to be here, and I, I really commend you. I was listening to the first part of your show, and, and I agree with all of you. Thank you, Bruce. Glad to hear it. Annetta, I think you had something else. I'd like to bring up another quote from Patrick Henry. Show me that age and country where the rights and liberties of the people were placed on the sole chance of their rulers being good men without a consequent loss of liberty. So what I'd like to talk about here is what is your view on what's currently going on in our seat of government? Well, the, the whole system is so rigged, it's unbelievable. I mean, on both parties' sides. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's as they're discussing, I just, uh, because I've, I've spent a lot of my lifetime uh, out, out of the United States, and in different cultures, and my wife uh, was French-Canadian. She passed away many years ago, but the thing is that, um, you know, you just kind of scratch your head. We're in a time of change, and the predictions that I know of and that I see, uh, what's going to really start the revolution is when you see the breakup of the United States, and that's going to happen. Yeah, I think think so, too. I think also the... The um, 
you know, the Democrats and the Republicans. You know, they're they're those are dead I call parties. them the Republican rats. The Democrats and the Republican rats. Oh, yeah, like yeah, there's, there's there, just, there. it's just so bad. But you know, the thing about this is, at least it's they're they're exposed um, because they, they've exposed themselves through this. You know, uh, that's the one good thing you can say. You know, mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson said, you know, the thoughts of man, mankind would shame the devil himself. And, you know, you don't have to work, look very deep for, you know, cabal or Illuminati is when you travel around and you, and you, the, you represent companies that you st- set up motorcycle dealers or, or I was in advertising and I had to go to a lot of different places and you see America, the underbelly of it, everything else, you realize that, you know, there's, both positivity and negativity everywhere. And this right. is the agenda that people pick out in life. And, uh, um, and I, uh, yeah, I've seen it right here on the coast of California. Some stuff that's just heartbreaking what goes on. And, but mm-hmm. the unfortunate part about it is our heroes in our lifetime are either the, the generals that won the war or the, the the people that have contracted incredible wealth doesn't matter how they got it. That, that's in right. They're just up there. We need a new group of heroes and heroes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need a new set of priorities and imaging for young people to aspire to, and mm-hmm. and not the ones that we've we've got out there, because it's. Uh, We've got a culture of greed in every aspect of America, and uh, and it's it's hurting a lot. Uh, we've got a great disparity in you know in um, equity and income. And uh, as uh, I had a retired nurse, um, uh, not nurse but a retired nun, Savitlina, that sat me down one day about. 12 years ago and said, Bruce, if we ever have a real falling out economically and everything else and the poverty is there, there's this one group of people that the police departments and everybody can't really deal with. And she said, that's the drug gains. They're far more well-equipped and dangerous than you could imagine. Mm. And, And the thing is that if we ever came to a point in civil war, they would be unstoppable, and uh, and she dealt with all pieces of society. And my concern right now, and my upsetness, is the fact is that is that I don't want to see a civil war occur in the United States because that would do so much damage. It wouldn't matter who was elected. I mean, we 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 if you if you look at the movie. I'm trying to remember the name of it uh, on Japan. After we bombed Japan, you'd get an idea of what could happen, and we would destroy our commodity, our our our, our um, economy, our culture, and it would take decades to recover. And I people do not have a sense of that. I lived on the edge of a revolution when the P Cuba government uh, was got elected in Quebec and they wanted to separate and we had assassinations and everything else and 
the 76 Olympics tank where tanks were in the street. My wife was almost killed in a bank robbery when they came in with AK-47s. And uh, we left Canada after that. And I saw what, what, I saw an edge of what would happen. And then, of course, I had a lot of students there were refugees from war-torn areas. Um, that's not a reality that I, I hope never reaches in the United States. It wouldn't matter who was in office if that had occurred. Mm. Well, it also looks like there is a third party forming, the Patriots, and w what impact that will have. It does seem like, oh, either way it goes, there's going to be big, big, big conflicts. Well, and, uh, I think we need to look at creating sustainable communities around bioregions. And bioregions is what I mean by the watershed regions and managing the water resources of the area. And those areas need to get very assertive. And the fact is they're not going to take any, pardon the expression, bullshit from Washington or a lot of this entrenchment that's gone on in governance. I mean, and that governance could be within counties or cities or what have you. I have a particular philosophy is we should turn it all into cooperatives and make everybody accountable. And you'd see vast changes really quick. Mm. You know, you couldn't get somebody elected sitting there. I mean, some of the salaries in California that they're paying civil employees in cities would are unbelievable. Oh, I know that's true. <laughs> yeah, quarter of a million dollars and everything else and the equivalent mm -hmm. in industry is half that, you know. I, I uh, and uh, what was that? What was that town in California where they? I mean, a little small town. These people raking in millions of dollars. You, you know what I'm talking about? It was about five years ago. There was a big scandal about it, and uh, oh my God! But there's so much of that has gone on. You know, yeah. I tell everybody if we, if we ever had a real crisis in America, we just turn the whole thing over to the fire chiefs. Okay, they're community committed. They know what to do in a case of emergency. And they're in really good physical condition. And they have the respect of the whole neighborhood. I just want to add one thing that people seem to forget. I do this with my students in school. I, I Because all of us have been subject to so much negative news. And I, so I remind my students when I'm in uh, teaching. And I say, have you ever walked by a newsstand and saw a positive headline? You know, it's wonderful weather this weekend. Are we going to have a good time? And here's all the delightful places to go. And the thing is that, have you ever seen it? Of course not. There was an incident that happened about, oh, probably 10 or 15 years ago when there's a very prestigious organization called the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And they give out these very prestigious awards. And, and one of it was to, to the Pulitzer family for all their contribution to uh, American press and and news and, and their newspapers and everything else. And something happened during that award when I think it was the grandson of the founder, Pulitzer goes back into the 1800s. And he said to the audience, he says, I don't think our family and organization deserves this award. And, and just stopped the audience totally cold because they never had that ever happen. He said, because 
it was our family that discovered back in the 1800s that negative news sells newspapers. So we would always put out some kind of headline like the sky is falling, okay, so you better buy in a newspaper and find out where you dig your foxhole. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think both this mainstream media and a large part of the alternative media is committing the same sin, is that it's fear, warning, all kinds of catastrophe, you know, going on. And and the same formulas being used, well, if I scare the hell out of people, they'll sign up and subscribe. There's always been crisis. There's always been a disaster. There's always been something that's gone haywire. And it's just that with the Internet and our modern media, we get so much instant information about We get tweeted. We get text. We get Instagram, Facebook. And if we don't do that, we walk into a, a sports bar and it's all up on screens between games. And we get saturated with it. And no wonder, you know, uh, you know, uh, depression has become the favorite pastime in America, particularly in some other countries as well. When in actual fact, the amount of great points of light that are emerging all over this world, I have on my computer just architectural designs, innovations around the world for architecture for homes. I don't dare to turn any of my visitors on that screen because that'll be the end of the conversation. They will be in there, you know, like home improvement. Bruce, don't bother me. I'm absorbed in, God, I would love to have this place or that place. There are so many great things happening. Well, how are we spending our time? How are one spending their time? Are you spending your time investigating what gives you joy? What gives you pleasure? Me and my friends were joking one evening and we wanted to start the National Bullshit Index. The only problem <laughs> was we couldn't find graph paper that was long enough and steep enough to, to, to show the graduation of the chart. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's almost laughable. But the thing is, what's happening in parallel to this is people are having all kinds of experiences and consciousness and capability. This they can't suppress, okay? And they have no way of doing it. And you have, uh, and what you're seeing is is a a leapfrogging occurring. And people are getting trained in all kinds of. There's a guy from Cambodia uh, that's in Texas right now, and some friends of mine are, are tracking what the technology that he's just sharing right over the internet and blowing people's minds. things that a government doesn't even have. And the thing is that, so, you know, that lid is going to, is going to come off that cooker and is going to come off big time. Uh, and, uh, but what it's going to do is be in hands of people all over the world. Uh, I mean, you're, you're seeing, what was that story a couple of years ago? You're in the news, you know, about a couple of, uh, uh, young uh, uh, black girls in uh, I forget what country and and one of the more impoverished countries in Africa found a whole new way to produce plastics with bananas and oh. successfully I, yeah, I and it was incre- incredible it blew everybody and that 16 year old kid a number of years ago who ran around Nigeria pulling pieces together and built his own radio station MIT flew him to MIT at the age of 16 
because they said that was damned impossible to do, and he did it. Yeah. You know, so I kind of, you know, I kind of laugh and chuckle about all of that stuff. Is that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, guys, you've been keeping the lid on this for a long time, and that lid is, is done. I'm curious, our youth, they are the ones who are very much being targeted and the really the little ones, the young ones, this is what's being laid down as the pathways for their neural, you know, network. And I'm wondering, what okay. would you say to parents, what we can okay. do? Okay, I, I got a, a funny way of addressing that one. Take a step back for a second. And what I taught in any given field you can name, I don't care what it is. You go to a college or a university, it could be economics, it could be aeronautical engineering, it could be whatever you want to do. And psychologists have been studying that, and they call it the groupthink culture. In other words, I've got my bachelor's degree, I'm going for my master's, my PhD, and pretty soon you're, you're confronted with the fact that the people that are proving your dissertation have a certain way of thinking, and you better think like them, okay? Mm -hmm. You yep. see this in economics where it's absolutely stupid, and you see the innovation occurring in Amsterdam with uh, Kate Raworth and, uh, and the donut economic system that's being, the uh, Netherlands is adapting, is almost in every type and then you'd have engineers and scientists come over from Russia who are like brains exploded all over the place. I mean, it sounds interesting. They'll pursue it. You know, I mean, they don't have much limitation. And, uh, and this is true with a, a lot of different, you know, cultures. And uh, in America, we're actually a pretty conservative country. Yes, I go along with all the suppression and everything else. But... The thing about it is it's even more of a problem because we we teach people the way to think. I go to my dermatologist and and I say to him, I, well, how come you don't recommend CBD oil, okay, for my scalp because I got that precancerous stuff on my scalp and stuff. Oh, we can't do that because it isn't in the code book. I mean, huh. I mean, I, I you know, it just kind of like... Uh, I said, in chemtrails, they're spraying the wrong material. What they really need to do is be spraying a bit of LSD and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it. I don't care what field you're in. I remember back in the days I wanted to go to the University of Minnesota, and I was still in, studying Colin Campbell and, and Formula One design engines and stuff and Ducati motorcycles. And, and I, I went to the engineering department because I wanted to know about automotive engineering. And I'll never forget the head of the department looked at me and said, Bruce, considering what you're reading and studying about, you don't understand the only thing we we do here is teach them how to build tractors. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. I, I, you know, don't get me in, in, into those in those circles, because I I have a way of disturbing too many minds. Okay, I, <laughs> this is uh, why I, uh, they invite you, though, <laughs> because oh, yeah, they want it. Yeah, yeah they, they, that's where the innovation I, comes. I, I told him I come with a warning label. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of, just kind of, you know, it's it's 
some of it borders on so ridiculousness it's not funny but what what I'm encouraging about is you know let's take an innocent example is that a group of professors from England set up something quite interesting is that they set up an institute for advanced physics and they wanted to locate it in South Africa and the general trend of thought amongst our country and everything else why would you want to do that they're too stupid okay to 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 take a uh, to uh, participate in advanced student uh, of physics I tell you one thing the people that from Africa that are graduating out of that institute don't have to worry about a job. Uh, they have found bright minds all over Africa that in the phenomenon known as retarding lead, when you take a regular to primitive society and they jump ahead of everybody else, that's exactly what they're experiencing. And mm. that has been in, around for quite a bit now. And uh, so... Oh, you know what? I just want to jump in. The reason I think they jump ahead is because... They have not been programmed into this little dogma, scientific dogma, so that they are their minds are not imprisoned by this religious view of science. Exactly. I, no, I, have, I have something to say here. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Matter. Yeah. Well, uh, I've I've talked about this before that I think you know you've you've hit on it a couple times tonight with the whole thing about uh, education and you know, acquiescing to your um, professors because they're you're only going to get passed if you say it a certain way or whatever. And you yeah. get you kind of into that thing or you didn't have an opportunity, but you, you know, you come up with this idea about making plastic out of banana peels because you don't know what you can't do. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you don't put the brakes on because you, you don't know that's impossible because it's not for you. I, I, again, I think what's needed is the activeness of the powers of discernment what is appropriate in this and what is not okay and people have to stand their ground on, on on those issues we have to be the manifestors of our own destiny we haven't even begun to explore what our human consciousness can we haven't even begun to i mean look at a shigong master look at the people who are uh, in, in sports and their performance they're doing. Look at the people that are just on, that do astounding performance on, on America's Got Talent and those other variety shows. You'll see people do extraordinary things. So we are, we have got a long ways to go in our own ev evolution to realize the potential of our being. Yeah. Well, I'm very concerned about the children that are uh, in school and they're being isolated from each other. They're being taught to fear each other. What ways we can somehow make our children more independent of the technology? Well, that's a, that's a that's a tough one. It's uh, uh, there's far too too much of it. But what I noticed in that in my foray into different educational system, the students that started down the road in permaculture and working on the land, uh, I pre uh, frequently have visited one of the schools, and what I've noticed is that uh, uh, they're so engrossed in um, building cob houses and building cottages of, and natural building materials and everything else, 
they don't even remember where they put their cell phone, okay? Uh, and uh, they're totally engrossed in it. And mm. uh, the permaculture gardens is that. And I think state, uh, teachers uh, around the country have, have addressed this issue that when a child works in a garden and the seeds that they're planted in the soil blossom into some beautiful bush or flower or anything else, this, the, kid, the child is so mesmerized by this kind of miracle of growth. They're completely into what you know, they're doing. We need more exposure, you know, to, to nature and natural life. And then I think that uh, it'll take people, you know, away from that. And that's, that's also a responsibility of the parents, uh, as well as the educator, and, uh, and to set a, you know, a priority for discovery of life in all forms. I was going to agree with you, Bruce. I have I have seen this phenomenon too. And actually, Cynthia and I have a friend, Shelley, that uh, has worked with students. That she's a chef, and she's worked with students with the gardening, and teaching them how to grow their own food and then how to prepare it. And they become extremely engaged in this process. Mm-hmm. I'm quite interested in a nomadic lifestyle. And one thing I hear from virtually everyone who has children, I don't have children, I have cats, but uh, if I did, I would be doing this. They take them out on the road and, you know, actually have them experience, you know, have experiential experience versus uh, virtual. <laughs> and, it, and it changes everything. And, and I know that the things that I remember, the things that make me creative to this day, that make me confident to this day were the actual experiences I had. And, and I'm, I think that this is something that people can do. Uh, I, it's very unfortunate about the separation of people and, and being fearful of other people because we are communal animals. I mean, we like communities. And I heard, a, I heard an ad to that. I only listen to the radio barely only sometimes when I'm in the car and I heard this ad and it just it just made me want to irk right in the car because it was saying stay away from people you don't know and don't get too close to anybody and wash your hands and do this and 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 it's like and wear a mask and blah 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 and I'm like thinking and the science doesn't back you up but you're brainwashing people to like actually fear I mean the way it was I'm, I'm not doing a good job, but the way it was worded was so incredibly negative and fear, fear-mongering for people, well, and that other people are dangerous, basically, is what it was saying. The problem so, underlying, and when I lectured on this, I tell people, if you look at the health statistics in America, and we're considered by all international agencies is to be the most unhealthy developed country in the world. Mm-hmm. We have the we have the worst health statistics. We're thirty seventh in, in overall statistics. We spend the most amount of money, and the most amount of personal bankruptcies are very because they can't pay their health care bills. We do not have a mandate in this country for help. So whether it was Corona nineteen or something else. We were ripe for a whole bunch of things. Now, all my family, live, biological family, lives in Sweden. And I, I, I know this is going to sound like a plug for Sweden, so I'll go for it anyway. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but anyway, I don't see any of the particular uh, people advancing in age, any of the illnesses that are common here. I don't see dementia. I don't see Parkinson's. 
I don't see, you know, people walking around and, uh, and walk with walkers or anything else. I do see a lot of crazy Swedes, okay, that uh, put wheels on two ends of a board and practice cross-country skiing down a, a rural road at, at, at speeds they shouldn't be traveling, okay. Uh, they've scared the hell out of me a few times. And what was it, about 10 years ago or so, the person that won the most difficult ski event in the entire, uh, called the Vassalop? He was 64 years old. He beat everybody, including the 30-year-old military guys, okay? I mean, I had, don't see that kind of illness rate, and I don't see it in a lot of places in Europe, okay? So we've got to ask ourselves, I mean, Americans... They get sick and old and cancer, then they go to an island off, uh, off Sicily, okay, and they get well and they have a good time the rest of their life. And, you know, none of the uh, all the fancy stuff that they peddle here. I, well, no, no, we, we, we are an unhealthy nation to begin with. We were ripe for something. Well, I, I had brought this up a long time ago on one of the very early shows. One, I'm trying to think the name of the study. You might know it. It's a pretty famous study, but they did a study. It was around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, long, um, you know, like quite a while ago, more like 70 years ago or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a bunch of Italian immigrants there, and they uh, they basically did everything wrong by our books. They smoked and they drank and they ate, you know, lots of pasta and lots of greasy food and blah, 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 all this stuff, right? All this stuff we're told not to do. And they outlived everybody, and they didn't die of these chronic diseases, and they, mm-hmm. they, were, they were healthy, and they couldn't figure it out. They were scratching their heads, and eventually it came to, then they've replicated this experiment, too. What it came down to was the community, that mm-hmm. the, the, inner, the relationships that they had and the support they had within that community, and that's why I feel this is so incredibly dangerous, because... When I'm, I mean, I'm not going to have a relationship with someone walking down the sidewalk, but I find it bizarre that I'm out sweeping the steps out front and people will walk out into the street and risk getting hit by a car rather than get near me because, I mean, within six feet of me even, you know, because I don't have a mask on while I'm sweeping the the front steps. It's just, just, it's the paranoia is beyond belief. And and it's just, you know, the the breakdown of community is, it's incredible. And I say to people all the time, I'm like, They'll be obviously in fear of me, and I'll say to them, "Hello, I'm friendly," and I smile. And about half the time, they'll they'll still answer back, and I think they're smiling under the mask. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I, I think this is the biggest thing. I mean, this is huge—the um, breakdown of of uh, community from this. Well, the thing you mentioned something very important, and that was the fact is the sense of community. The uh, Harvard, uh, just uh, in the last couple of years, released a very important study that started in about 1937, and they took, a, I forget, a number of seven or 9,000 men and, and tracked them through all their years. Of course, a lot of them passed away, and they had four directors about what was the most important thing in their entire life. Was it they became billionaires or heads of companies or whatever? It was none of that. It was the relationships that they valued in their life. It was the friendships, the the, uh, the collegiateness that they uh, embraced, and that was the most important thing. And Italians, as you were saying, several other cultures are like that. And uh, uh, you know that that is a very 
that is also in recent studies on health, people staying healthy, that is a number one issue is how they value both themselves and their relationships. That has more importance than vitamins or shots or vaccines or anything. And, um, and, and that's come out in, in, in recent studies. Well, anyway, I do think it's vitally important, and this is a big concern, of course, because people are isolated. I mean, particularly people uh, that are alone, um, that are self-quarantining, or they're just terrified to go out, or, you know, whatever their situation is, people are more alone now than ever. And we've had this phenomenon developing for years, because we had this whole thing of people having their social interactions through a device called smartphone and they have their social interaction on Facebook, which we know doesn't really work out. And now we've got this on top of it. So do you have any, uh, um, a, a short thing? We've got about 30 seconds left. Would you like to comment on well, that? Well, I think, I think it, it, the time is for humor. Okay. And when I go into the bank, I asked the tell about tellers, I said, I feel very uncomfortable wearing a mask and, and asking for money. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, we're to the break time, so we'll catch you after that. Okay. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. They are so few. They're in the thousands. We are billions. We are billions of people. So they need technology, very advanced technology, to be able to control us. And that is where AI, 5G, comes in. And then through the vaccine also get rid of two-thirds of us. So it's like a very, very, very dark agenda they want to play out. But I tell you, the way I see the future, oh my God, fantastic. Oh, like my mom said, fan-bloody-tastic. Hi, this is Ola Damagod from LightOnConspiracies.com. You know, over the years I've done some 500 to 1,000 international interviews, and I just want to say the other side of the news is one of my favorite shows. So enjoy. Welcome back to the other side of the news. 
I'm Timothy Saunders, co-hosting with Kintia and Annette Driscoll. And our show this evening is entitled Roadmap to Renaissance. Our guest, Bruce L. Erickson, has been laying some of the foundations of our conversation. And Bruce, if I may, I have a few questions for you. Fire away. I was delighted to hear about some of your reflections about the state of health in, in Sweden. And from some of the people I've come across through my life, also noted that uh, it's not just the state of health, it's also the state of mentality, a healthy state of mentality in Sweden, in my opinion. And I think that when we look at the decision-making process of how various countries decided to, if they did actually decide, uh, chose to deal with the, the pandemic, I think Sweden is one of the, the few in, on the planet that actually stood its own ground to some extent and did not lock the country down. Would you like to offer any insight from your perspective on this? Well, my feeling about it, all of this really is, is that I think Swedes as a whole, and it comes about naturally through their education and uh, just their activities, okay, and the way they, they're not perfect by any means. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of McDonald's franchises in Sweden, I forewarn you, okay. But they were also the first McDonald's franchises to serve organic meals, okay, which uh, the U.S. McDonald's didn't want to hear about. But I think that there's, and this in two in France, the meals, if those people have seen the Michael Moore film with the, the children in France and the meals they serve the children. There's a consciousness of health that uh, is, is just ingrained in you know, their, the education and their actions. Their, um, and I mean, they don't make a big issue out of it. And if you tried to get you know, a, a checklist of uh, health for the week, they probably would look at you and uh, what are you talking about? I think the, the pandemic, for what it's worth, is also telling us, in this country anyway, uh, the thing about it is there is no national effort for healthy Americans. There was actually a, uh, an executive from one of the big pharmaceutical companies that was caught off camera saying, you know, healthy people are bad for business. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, because I work and I'm an advisor in the health field, I think is that it's economics that run the healthcare system. The actual percentage of deaths, okay, and, and percentage-wise from people who contract uh, COVID-19 is actually pretty small. And if we look back upon, uh, oh, for the last 40 years, we've had all kinds of, of plagues of sort, uh, and um, none of them required the kind of action that that this one has. I agree. I am well aware of the extenuating circumstances that you folks addressed in the opening of your show, and I would agree with a lot of it. I mm -hmm. probably know a little too much for my own good, okay, about all of that. But what I also have to look at is that where is our priorities? Really? You know, I... I 
I, I get a kick out of the um, the friends of mine. Let's say they have family, they have parents, or they have brother or sister, or everything else, who continually do things that are damaging to their health. You've got obesity and everything else, and it's like the biggest resistance they face in life is within their own family. Okay, that's a common complaint I get. Is that where is our sense of priorities that we've been blessed with a physical body with immense capability and then we trash it okay i don't have a particular answer for that but mm. we've got to get smart but, but isn't isn't this like a, a generational you know devolution almost because you know if the kid's not learning from the parents and the parents not learning from the grandparents then you know there is no there's a void in that void the only voice to hear is perhaps something on an iPad or something from mainstream media or television and so on. And then, yeah, people are just victim to whatever effluent that uh, the large corporations wants to push on them. That That's very, very true. And it's, uh, but if you look at sinequestered societies like the Amish and a few other, those kind of close, you'll find some much better health statistics overall. And they're not taking vaccines and they're not taking a bucket load of pills and anything like that. Uh, as a rule, they don't. Um, so we got to learn from that and make the criteria of health a, a, a real mission statement uh, in, our, in our, both our culture and our reality in our community. They're starting to get better and better about that. And places I, I know of an effort and... Um, there's a small town in Arizona, which the whole town is bought into a tremendously sustainable exercise. And uh, they're making the health of the people almost their new religion. So. Well, I'd very much like to talk some more about your wheels, like uh, wheels of community and wheels of health, I believe. I mean, I think it's a, it's a way I've, I've been doing some research on your, your work. You have so much... Uh, I'm not going to be able to get to much of it in very much depth, but I'd like to come to that as, as a target in our okay. conversation very soon. Oh, go ahead. But, Fire away wherever you'd like to go. Before that, I, I wondered if it would be sort of um, helpful if we, you know, quite directly cut a section through where we are today mm. as, as a, you know, as humanity, as, as a, as a community, if we take a sort of an average family, I mean, if I remember going back when I was growing up, the sort of the average family was defined as, uh, you know, sort of a mother, father, 2.4 kids or something, a dog and, and, a, and a goldfish or something. And, you know, there was this sort of whole model of how a family in, in sort of Western Northern hemisphere society should, should be. But mm -hmm. today, I don't hear that anymore because, of course, you 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 know you can't say anything about anybody without you know uh, being offensive or racist or anti-Semitic or whatever else it is that people want to throw dark clouds on anyone else. But I think it'd be very useful to actually just directly say where the society is today. I mean, if you take a model family, let's say in the United States, where do you think they are today? I mean, you know the multiple jobs uh we talked before about some people unfortunately not being able to sort of 
find the resources to pay their way through life, you know, working with credit from the bank. It, it, it's a question of not having enough time to, to prepare decent food or healthy food, organic food and so on. And, you know, everyone's tired out at the end of the day. They sort of chill out, watch TV or whatever. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just joining a few dots here, but would you like to define where we are? Do you think? Well, where? okay. I'm going to, um, take a little side jaunt here to, to illustrate a program, right? Please do. Whatever I'm saying and expressing is a result of an extraordinary network of people I work with from many parts of the world. And we have a lot of ongoing communication. So uh, I don't want to propose that I'm the pillar of wisdom in all these things. What you're hearing from me is a lot of, you know, research and stuff that has come to the forefront for me. Uh, and that's what I'm expressing. This is going to hit part of your audience pretty hard. But I, I have a lot of millennium friends. They're from 20 to 40, okay? typical age group and uh, what I witnessed is is the difficulty a lot of young people have even bonding okay for a family when I grew up you know the girl met the captain of the football team and they were married by 22 or what have you okay that's not happening okay uh, today when I and I had this discussion with nurses some young woman and I you know, I know some young women that are, are, are fantastic. They're brilliant and they're um, they're intelligent and everything else. And I said, well, the first thing you need to do, you get interested in a guy, is drag him over and have a toxicology analysis and a hormone test. Okay, if there's no t testosterone, there's no relationship. On the to toxicology test, and I'm speaking about AR labs and stuff like this and you've got certain types of, of, of heavy load of heavy metals and everything, it'll detect a lot of the form of behavior, okay? And, um, and people wonder uh, why they, they're behaving that way, and, and there's a, some superb research on this, and we don't pay attention to that, but it can form the person's behavior. Now, and that can be whether in a relationship or on a job or however you have is that again? It's uh, the family unit has been incredibly challenged. I mean, the uh, the divorce rate is high. Uh, uh, I said a, this is a tragic statement. I probably know more single mothers through the last 40 years that were raising kids than I knew in a in a um, uh, in a structured family unit, which is a a sad situation, really. One of my really good friends is. She's a beautiful woman, and she's raising seven kids on her own. I mean, seven, seven. Wow. Fortunately, they're all bright lights, and and they're incredible. But just the the expense of that, and the they live in a rather uh, not a very big uh, uh, condo, and they got bunk beds and everything else. Uh, I go over there when I can, and I the, the kids are incredible. But uh, I, I think the amount of kids that have left on their own, and I've, it's not only from here, but um, I've dealt with kids who have been refugees from war zones and from other countries, and 
my God, you know, it's and and those experiences. Uh, there's an after effect of insecurity, uh, of hope, of the realization: can they live a normal life? And um, they carry emotional and psychological scars that oftentimes are not that easy to heal. So uh, the there is quite a challenge that's going on right now in a number of these areas. And I commend those researchers and therapists and people within the various professions who are trying their best to do something about that. So we're all, I say, we're all on different levels, victims of our sort of our history, our upbringing, our, you know, our programming, basically, if we look at the sort of the work of Bruce Lipton, for example, epigenetics, yeah. he says that sort of in the first seven years of your life, we're basically on record mm. and we're recording everything around us within incredible amounts of accuracy and detail. And, you know, when we sort of gain a, a sort of more conscious level, a, a better awareness of ourselves, we start to run those programs subconsciously, leaving uh, a small amount of computer power in the brain to to sort of be, to be the ego, to be the, you know, the decision maker of, of how we creatively choose our life. But actually, a lot of the, a lot of our actions uh, come from our programming. So if our programming is coming from, let's say, a lack of balance in, you know, parent, parenting, or there is no father figure or no mother figure, or you know, if perhaps people are being brought up by the television instead of you know their grandmother telling them stories from of old then clearly it's not just a question of people today it's a question of generations many generations coming to the point where we we've reached a saturation point where people are walking around without this this balance well and it's, it's tragic for another reason because technology as it is right now has absolutely uh, sabotaged a lot of young bi people's ability to communicate. And uh, I see this in schools as I've lectured, and that is that they've got their attention on their iPhone or their iPad or whatever piece of technology they're using. And the ability to express themselves and present themselves or even form some type of bonding relationship, they're incredibly awkward at it. And uh, I... Well, that's right. I mean, yeah. if, 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 if younger people are having a conversation and perhaps they don't feel comfortable with the way the, the conversation is going, yeah. people do not have a mute button. Yeah. And so then they have to, uh, that's why I think people become confrontational in a way because you know, they, they avoid the, com I say confrontational, but they avoid confrontation and therefore look for that mute button. There is no mute button in, in, in real life. So you know, then you, you sort of become polarized that one person is, you know, black, the other one's white. You know, there's no gray. It's kind of a, a, what can I say, a punctuation mark where an impasse where people cannot continue further with the conversation. Well, it's also too, as they get, oftentimes they're so shy, they don't know how to communicate. And they, they, they haven't been drawn out of their shell. And what I've done in the classroom, I said, I don't care what field you're in. 
or where you're going to go. At some point in time, you're going to have to express yourself. You're going to have to present your ideas and however way you ex express it, okay? Uh, and it, it could be use of some kind of artistic medium too, but uh, in order to get, your, get yourself across to the other person or the other group or what have you, uh, and, and value those associations and those friendships. It's important. Absolutely. And I, I think the other point which is, is interesting is that these technological tools, which we, we spoke of, iPads, iPhones, and smartphones, tablets, and so on, they give the illusion of having more, you know, a wider spread of communication. And yet they are this, this wall, this barrier, uh, which actually prevents real communication. So to those that are not discerning the difference, Mm -hmm. then they may feel they have the whole world at their fingertips, but in fact, they do not have the skill to actually have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody. Well, I had a funny experience. I have, a, I have some things that I do to open kids up, and they're rather mischievous, okay? Well, let's I hear about it. some of those. I, I have a rubber ball, okay? And in that rubber ball is like it's a little globe, and there's all the, the continents of the world and everything on it. I, uh, I had an incident uh, uh, last year. It was really funny. Uh, I have a really good uh, Latino friend, Rocio. She's just a marvelous person. She's a, a gift to the entire community, of the Latin community. And she'd bring over her uh, young niece, who at the time was nine years old. And typical Latino, shy, hides her head, everything, and don't talk, and stuff like this. Finally, I had enough of that nonsense. So I did what I I've done with other kids too. Take that rubber ball and I toss it at them, and they catch it. And they're like, "What am I doing here?" And they look at it and they see what it is. And I just tell them, "I said, now you got the whole world in your hands. What are you going to do with it?" <laughs> and Rocio said to me later on, "What the hell did you do to her? I mean, one minute she's shy as all hell. Now you don't shut her up, okay?" And and <laughs> and, and, and when I've seen her. He goes like, Uncle Bruce, boo, you know, like, oh my God, what happened? I mean, you know, somebody spike your orange juice or something. I mean, it's, it's, it, it awakened them. And, and uh, I'd use another uh, a ball that's shaped in a heart, and I'd toss that around, and, I, and I'd say, this is another way to play ball. And it, well, it gets them thinking. One of the things I'm noticing, Bruce, is that, you see, it was an interaction. I've gone to playgrounds and I see the child is playing by themselves and the parent is sitting there on their cell phone doing Facebook or whatever and not playing with their child. I mean, like, you know, the, the interaction, the adults have to step forward and start interacting with their children. I mean, I'm seeing these young parents don't know how to be parents. They're, they, they, they're uh, clueless what to do with their children. So they put their children in front of a television. And I, you know, I think the best thing is to get on the floor and crawl around on the floor with them. I've done that. Even at my age, I do that still. I'd like to see that. <laughs> well, uh, listen, I, I, have, I have a kind of a funny situation with kids. I have my millenniums, okay, who I... I do, I, I do the Italian and Indian thing. I, I say I need a new niece, I need a new nephew, 
and then they drive me to their homes and and God, I uh, one place I go to, the girls are they're they're actually dancers. They're what the two twins are nine, the other one's twelve, and they're dancers at at when Disney World was open. They were doing dancing and stuff, and the girl says, "Oh God, Bruce is uh, Uncle Bruce is here. Good, get out the face painting and." <laughs> They want to paint my face as a Disney character, and um, <laughs> and uh, or there's always something else. I, I I just had an alert because I grew up in foster care, so I just want to say so. To me, a good communication and family, because I missed a, a lot of that. I felt is very important, and so wherever I am, I I, I respect the kids at all ages. The one a friend of mine that's uh, the single mother with seven kids has got a six-year-old son, though, that <laughs> he got. I come there with all my medical equipment and everything else, and that kid interrogates me to the nth degree. I said, I, I've said to, to, to his mother, I said, I don't care how you think. I said, this kid's going to be really dangerous in a few years, okay? He's already well <laughs> on his way. And I just have a d delight with them, but you know, I think there's a thirsty, a thirst amongst young kids, and I get this in Sweden too. Uh, although they all want to teach me Swedish, which is a real challenge. Okay, but um, I really enjoy it, and I and I, I have a sincere enjoyment of their presence, which I think they feel readily. You know, they just know that. And uh, uh, one time in Sweden, I had about. I was at some event, and about five of them were hanging on to me. And my friend who was traveling with me, this nurse from New York, she looks over at me and says, for a guy that never had any kids in his life, okay, and Adam, you'd never know it. You'd never know it at all. <laughs> so, well, you know, and what I see also, Bruce, is that you, you touched on something. You said you grew up in foster care. Yeah. So to me, it shows that no matter where we've come from, we can choose an alternate reality. I mean, you chose to develop the ability to relate. I mean, it's not easy to grow up in foster care. I've known others who've grown up in foster care, and it's been very crippling for many of them. Oh, yeah. So yeah. The, the ability of the human, of, the, of, you know, of our consciousness to make choices to break out of old patterns that we were programmed into. So you're an inspiration that way. First of all, I enjoy it. I think that, you know, it was really funny in this day and age in technology, you know, we all need a 12 to 14 year old neighbor, okay? Because uh, I remember one time I got a new digital camera and I, I, I went over uh, uh, to my neighbors and Catherine, this, uh, how old was she at the time? I think she was about 14. And I, I told her mother, she turned into a 50-year-old uh, school marm from England, okay, with a very stern attitude, and as if to say, stupid adult wants to learn how to use, use a new digital <laughs> camera. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. I, was, I was the sacrificial material that evening, okay. But uh, I, I think it's a lot of fun. I, I have the attitude is that we can learn from everybody. And I told the kids, I said, listen, you're younger, much younger than I am, but you have a perspective that I'm really curious as how you see things. 
and how, what, how do you see and how you feel? And if I open up that discussion like that, boy, do they ever open up. I mean, they just, mm. they just, you know, they're just expressive and, and they tell me what they like and what they see and they got questions and everything else. I learned uh, a lot of that. I, I was, um, I got a wonderful friend up in Sun Valley named Linda Sear who, um, is operates a, a kind of a daycare for really young children. And she had me sit in a circle. And the one thing she'd do is that no matter your age, everybody's treated with the same mutual respect. So the kids were allowed to ask me any questions I wanted. And I would be allowed to ask them questions too. And, and once they got over this momentary intimidation that adults of the room and realized I was genuinely listening, then boy, talk about rich conversations that we'd have. And I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it a lot. And uh, because I feel that, uh, you know, once, uh, particularly when they get from about 12 on, well, even sometimes the younger ones, you know, that we all stand to learn from each other and and share from each other. And, uh, and like you brought up cooking or kitchen, is that I think there's an eagerness to learn if there's an engaged adult, okay, that will work with them respectfully and and inter and in an interesting way. Uh, then they just tend to open up. And that's the key, an engaged adult. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, our audience is uh, in that category. I know we all need some inspiration and how to move forward with our children and listening to our children. I think that's a key there because when we listen to them, then we are affirming their self-worth. In your resume, it mentions your talk at the UN. I'd love to hear about that. You know, when uh, when 9-11 occurred in Paris after I was doing that uh, talk, is that uh, that morning... I was trying to get ready for, because I I was on the schedule to speak and uh, at the UN and uh, all dressed up in a suit and everything else. Then I looked at the clock and I realized I really fouled up because um, you, there's a timing when you live in Manhattan. If you want a cab, you have to get it before a certain time, otherwise they're all taken. Mm-hmm. And I realized I'd overstepped myself, so I took my case down. Everything else had put on a backpack and got on my Ducati and a nice blue suit on and everything else and parked at the UN garage. I mean, it was something I would never normally do. And I walked into the UN and I, and, um, and the woman that was in charge of all the speaking schedules and everything else. And I was scheduled for being the fifth speaker. Okay. And she turned to me and says, Oh, we changed all that schedule, Bruce. You're first. I said, you know, I just like, eh, you know, because, you know, you like to go over your notes. I mean, you're at the UN, for God's sake. You better right, right. have your act together. You know, it's a, you can't bluff your way on that one. Okay. Um, and uh, lo and behold, I turned out to be the first and last speaker that morning of 9-11. Yeah. And, and because I had my motorcycle, and, of course, there was planes still in the air, and they didn't know what was the next target and everything else in the emergency evacuation of the UN. So Sally uh, Bishop, who was in charge of it at part of Mount Sinai, 
I'd been a, a medical advisor to Mount Sinai. And she calls me up and she said, Bruce, the entire city's got shut down. You can't get a cab. You can't get anything. We have patients in, that are in critical need of medicine. I mean, you don't tell a person who needs a box of colostomy bags is saying there's no bags available. Uh, that's a different kind of crisis, okay? Um, and so I ended up with my backpack and tank pack and everything else running all over Manhattan on my Ducati motorcycle at, at speeds that would have definitely got me a lot of tickets, but nobody was paying any attention. I wow. loved it. So, yeah, I was just you know. thinking you were loving that, even though... Yeah, I just kind of like, okay, I just kind of, you know, go for it. And, I, and there's a picture of that Ducati and stuff on the on my Facebook page that you can see it. It's a, it was a very fast machine and I loved it. But, um, yeah, I think I it was divine arrangement. You, you were late for the taxis. So it's, 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 it's nice to know that I'm, I'm hanging out with a crowd. Okay. Whose tendencies and delinquency are still ever present. <laughs> <laughs> I was part of the task force of, the closing of the largest military base in U.S. history was Fort Ord. And uh, it was a, literally collapsed a town of 38,000 people. That had never been done in California before. And so we, uh, there was an initiative started the Monterey Bay Region Futures Network, which was what impact is this going to have on a big chunk of the central coast of California. And so I... Uh, we'd have these discussions about what can we do to make everything interesting. And so one night I'm, I'm at uh, dinner with some friends of mine, this uh, lovely husband and wife and their, and their daughter, precocious daughter, seven, uh, Stephanie, who was about 13 years old at the time. And we're talking away and everything else. And then I looked over and Stephanie's getting this grimace on her face. And she says, all you adults do is you talk, you talk, 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 and you don't do nothing for us kids. <laughs> I felt like somebody choked, pulled my choke chain, okay? Because I realized she was dead right. And so I, I set out the challenge. I said, with her parents' permission, I said, okay, what would you like to do? What would you like to do? I mean, what do you like to do? I said, uh, think about it with your friends and get back to me in a couple of weeks. And so um, we'd meet uh, every once a month, and we would have the mayors, county commissioners, everything else from all three counties. And we're talking about a really big chunk, uh, Central California. And uh, it was along about uh, political time and everything else. And I, I said to the group, I said, you know, we're all, you know, people. We we need a little bit of a uh, press exposure. What if we allowed one of the young students to speak? And the guy's, oh, yeah, we'll give her a few minutes, blah, blah, blah. Well, I wasn't even prepared for what this young girl did at the age of 13. And you think we'd, you know, Sweden's got Greta. Well, I tell you, there's a whole ton of Gretas in the world. Um, the, um, in she walks. She looks like she'd been decked out by Lord and Taylors in New York with a stern look on her face and a briefcase and you know, you really couldn't tell how old she was. And she got up to the podium, stared at everybody. And we're, what, 200 people in a room? And I'm talking about public officials and everything else. And it was towards lunch. And the guys were kind of 
putting their papers away and getting ready to break for lunch. And she opened up and brought the house down. She said, you do nothing for us kids. I said, you've got 26 institutes around this area and every form of marine biology and studies of the ocean and, and systems and climate scientists. I said, us students want access to that and have and be able to go on tours and talk to the scientists and everything else because a lot of us are planning our further education and our direction is going to be in this area. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. Wow. Uh, uh, the Packard Foundation guy, Gilbert, gives me a high sign and said, as if to say, when this is over, we're talking to this young woman. And <laughs> parents were in the room like, well. this is our daughter. <laughs> you know, like, what happened, you know? <laughs> well, that's it. The children yes. are our future. Yeah. Did she start drinking coffee this morning or something like this? Oh, my God. I was, I was so proud of her, and I was totally floored. But she did it with such, I mean, grace and, you know, the way she commanded the audience and spoke was unbelievable. And out of the result of it, uh, the Packard Foundation and the uh, at the Moss Landing Research Labs started to give students access to uh, the the ships and everything else, and trained them how to use the deep sea submersible so they could video record the deep sea life in the ocean. That got recorded and was rebroadcast to high schools all over America. All of result of a 13-year-old girl with a incredible idea. Wonderful, wonderful. We need more of them. And yeah. I'm I'm just wondering as you're talking about the children and being educated. I know you have uh, your research around the bioregions and sustainability, and you have your sacred wheels. Can you take us in one of those directions? Oh, God. I, somebody went to accuse me of dipping my hand in God's miscellaneous jar too many times. Okay. Let me put it this way it kind of all weaves together. Life and this earth is like a banquet, okay, in a way. You have an appetizer, you have a main course, you have a dessert, you have an aperitif, you have this and everything else, and it's, it's kind of a collage of things. But when you assemble that collage in the proper manner, you get a incredible banquet. That's how I would phrase it. And the thing is that the wheel that you're referring to, and for those listeners that are out there, if they go to my website, brucellerickson.com, there's wheels in there, and you can print, you can download and print them out. They're free. And one is the sacred wheel of the healer, and the other is the sacred wheel of community. And it identifies the different areas that we take a look at in both life and planning. And, and frankly, it's also... Uh, what direction one would like to spend their energies with and make it part of their life, or their career, or their work, or their extracurricular activities for their community. So it kind of gives them a, a sense of the options with it. I think I'd like to take a, a more specific question either from you folks or from a listener because uh, you know, I could go all over the map till 3 o'clock in the morning. Okay. Well, I know Annetta wanted to ask a question. Yeah. I do. I, I was actually, I, I, I have a very specific question about uh, 
the idea of the local sustainability and some we had we had had a brief conversation two of us and we had talked a little bit about uh, some of the different techniques with food and producing food in more sustainable ways and more organic you know having more organic uh, ways of producing it and you told me some things and I would just love for you to share that with the audience well I think one of the things about growing your own food there's a I would attend the Livable Cities Forum, and what they found was really kind of cute. They said every time you build a garden and you make it the same height as the produce counter in the supermarket, raised bed is what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. and you're not down on your hands and knees down on the ground, suddenly everybody wants to collaborate. Okay, and and oh yeah, this is really neat and interesting. It also keeps the uh, uh, the uh, the animals from the neighborhood eating all your produce too, but anyway, uh, that brings more. One in Monterey, for instance, they found that uh, they could hire the handicaps to do the divider in the in the roads by giving them putting in raised bed gardens because they could go along with their wheelchairs and they could tend the gardens. And um, I think that one the standpoint of the food production is. Uh, and my test always is that when have you last ate a tomato that has got flavor in it, okay? And uh, I've got some friends that are real specialists in growing a tomato with real taste. And when somebody tastes that or a fresh piece of basil or, uh, or I'm sure you guys could come up with some names of things too, is that they all of a sudden, wait a second, this is amazing. I want more of it, and they get engaged in the process. Uh, there's also a, um, uh, they did this in Santa Barbara, California, where they had, uh, they called a food share, because you go down a neighborhood, normally nice homes and stuff, but what you didn't see was in the backyard. And if you went in the backyard, there was gardeners all over the place that were growing things, vegetables and different things, most of the time, in a quantity, their families could never totally consume. You know, I mean, they're way more than, than they needed. And so they'd have swap meets, okay? There's somebody would set up a Sunday with a bunch of tables, and somebody would bring bushels of lavender, and somebody would be growing um, certain vegetables or, uh, uh, or fruits or what have you, or uh, bring plums or... Uh, uh, well, even flowers for that matter, and they swap things back and forth. Really popular thing, and it engaged the community. And uh, it also, because most of these gardeners were really excellent at what they did, and their quality was very high. Uh, you know, you you when you made a salad or anything like that, it it spoke to excellence for sure. I know I, I, that's true. I mean, I've been accused of being a food pornographer many times, yeah. and uh, I love my food porn. I mean, it can be enough. I got a uh, I got an heirloom seed catalog, and mm -hmm. she came she came over, and I was I was with my seed catalog, and she I'm reading the thing cover to cover like it's a great novel. I'm reading about every single seed and what it produces and why. And the thing is, is that we've gotten to this point where we have all this produce that's like, for example, tomatoes. They're produced to ship. 
and we pick them when they're not ripe so they ship better and they're bred for shipping purposes not for flavor and I want to say also the other thing is about food is is the more colorful uh, it, the more nutritious it is and the more flavorful it is so you know the 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 appearance and the the flavor thing are indicators of the level of nutrition so Yes, it's really important to get these tomatoes and stuff. And also, you know, the the local food movement of not shipping our stuff all over the place and eating seasonally, uh, that's super important in my world. Uh, I, do you have any any insights about that? Or Well, it, insights on that is, is wonderful. It's called the slow food movement. Oh. And the slow food movement, uh, oh, probably about six or seven years, decided to have the first international uh, conference and they picked San Francisco and San Francisco said oh you know a few foodies will show up for this, this and everything else 85,000 so uh, I know I was one of them and I went okay. to a bunch I went to a bunch of their dinners yeah. and um, it was absolutely fabulous I went from one place to the next for, I think it went on for like 10 days oh um, yeah two and weeks if or something on, if you go on Vimeo there's a uh, there's a film about the slow food movement that was taking place in eight countries. Um, in Sweden, uh, if you if uh, Luana invited you up to the manor house and it was in the summertime and uh, you'd sit down to a meal, what you didn't realize, everything in there, that meal was wild crafted from the lakes and the forest and everything else. All of it was, I mean, not even grown. It was literally gathered the asparagus that grew in the forest and the lichen and different things like this it was i mean you the flavor and the energy of it was like wait this is really different and uh and i must admit a little on the earthy side but you know you could just feel the energy from the food but the slow food movement is is an amazing uh thing is that i i interviewed now here for those of you who are listening and you're uh, talk about careers and field, I had a chance um, about four years ago to be out in Lilydale, New York, and I met two women that were consultants to the cottage food industry. One was uh, uh, handled beverages. You know, some of this was, you know. Uh, distilling and they were uh, alcoholic beverage but some of them were juices and everything else the other one handled the uh, the cheese making and the craft uh, foods and they would tell me stories about because they traveled throughout New York and New England at how successful these family businesses were I mean in many cases when the quality was really good you know they literally couldn't keep up with the demand couldn't I just got a uh, a notice uh, tonight I was uh, after a really sensational um, um, key lime pie my friend turned me on to this family where this woman is baking really special pies and uh, she said at Christmas time her phone just about melted in the heat okay because everybody in Santa Barbara wanted and they, she does it at home it's a cottage, it's not a big commercial kitchen, although it was approved and all that. But there is a real demand for excellence 
uh, and that things that really taste well and your experience with the slow movement, you know, exemplifies that, you know, once you experience that, you know, you're not going back to McDonald's. Okay. That's right. And when you eat that kind of food, I'll say this too, when you eat it, when I don't, when I eat junky food and and I hate, I'm loath to admit that I do, uh, uh, but for, for convenience reasons, um, but I always feel kind of crappy afterwards. And the interesting thing is, is when you eat really good, high quality food like that, it's organic, it's high quality, it's nutritious, and you can eat a boatload and still not have any problems digesting it. Your body actually knows. It's like, oh, that's that's real food. Oh, right, you know. And <laughs> so it's it's a very different experience. And uh, if people aren't familiar with this idea, you should really try to go out and. I mean, even if it's just like go to a place, a farmer's market that actually when when it's in season, you know, really try out these heirloom tomatoes and see the difference and you'll be hooked you'll be hooked oh yeah so. right very quickly and um and oftentimes you know those things are that much more expensive they might even be the same price the um the uh, fortunate i was in japan and i was fortunate enough to go with their the agricultural belt way in northern japan and and actually they're what we would call farmer's markets, food was less expensive than equivalent than I would spend at the farmer's market in Santa Barbara. Uh, the, but I can say I still can't figure out how Japan can have a, have a tree of pears and every pear is perfect. I don't know how they do that, okay? <laughs> I probably never will know, okay? But it looks like you see it like, they're all perfect. Okay, how do you do that? I don't know. Yeah. I'm guessing it's their perfect pruning, but anyway, yeah, I, I don't know I, that. I, yeah, yeah, I'm sure something there, but uh, it's kind of interesting to see. But uh, it's. Uh, I urge your listeners to when they, if they could, I think it's. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's where Michael Moore went over to Europe and did his filming. There's a, a part of that that shows what they. France, how they feed the children in their schools. And the comparison is when they brought in American food for the ch French children to eat. Oh boy, did that ever get turned down fast. Whoa. <laughs> I can assure you, I grew up with a really great, uh, uh, my, my parents were really into food and, and I grew up eating great food. Yeah. And, uh, I can tell you, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it the first time I, I, I came across this white bread sandwich with yellow mustard and bologna. I didn't even know what it was. And I and I and I ate it and I'm like, why would people eat this kind of stuff? It doesn't have any flavor. <laughs> it was a mystery as a kid, you know. And uh, anyway, it, it's it's so it's so different, so much better. Um, anyway. <laughs> That's all I guess. Now, now we're all getting hungry. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're coming close to the end of the show. I know uh, we wanted to reserve the last five minutes to do a um, a little bit of a, a meditation with you. So um, is there anything else from my co-host that you'd like to to ask at this point? Hmm. Well, I'm wondering if the sacred wheels would lead into that, Bruce. Uh, that, into the meditation or what? Well, <clears throat> I know there was something you wanted to share with us. 
And I'm just wondering if there's a tie-in to the sacred wheels or? Well, the sacred wheels, as I was saying just earlier, that uh, people can get that off my website and it's okay. free and they can print it out. And I know a lot of people, those those were printed up in big posters and they've been in, oh, I, I've long lost count of how many institutions have posted them up, the really big ones, okay. and. Uh, they, they're in Canada, the United States, and Europe. They're all over the place. So, But the sacred wheels are kind of a guide to all the elements it takes to get to both address health issues and then also what are we looking at from a holistic view of community and the, the things we have to take into consideration. It's just food for thought. And I, I can say this, that when you start to explore these avenues on um, what's in the sacred will, the things that are in a community, and you learn about what's being done in other countries, you're looking at the future direction of jobs, employment, education. Um, I just been asked to advise on a town who want to create a whole vocational center on sustainability and education and made that they're taking over a uh, an old um, a junior high school building for that purpose. And they've asked me to be one of the advisors on it. And uh, uh, and uh, I think what you're going to see is a lot of agrarian things come back into play. Uh, it's not just going to be technology because I think there's a draw that people are having to less experienced life in all of its forms, okay? One of my therapies I say to my clients is, find a place that is a greenhouse that grow flowers. And I say, go there with your camera, smell those flowers, look at the color and the beauty, and what are you attracted to? I mean, what you're doing is taking in the beauty of life. And what does it do for your psyche, for your consciousness? and for your own awakening. Bruce, that's really wonderful. I want to let everyone know they can find your posters on brucelerickson.com. And we're at the end of the show, and I'd love to invite you to share your visualization meditation that you were mentioning to me earlier. I would like everybody who's listening to the show right now to close your eyes and just find a place of relaxation. Uh, and what I'm going to take you to is just a brief thing. Just feel yourself really relaxing within your own self. And I'm going to ask you to help yourself visualize something. There's a symbol that's universal throughout the world in every culture, every country of the world. And that symbol is of the lighthouse, okay? That, that structure that sits on the edge of beauty, the edge of disaster, uh, you never hear about anyone collapsing in spite of all the storms and everything else that they can, they're subjected to. But it's a sense of security. And those of us who visited real lighthouses and seen the lamps and the lanterns, okay, there is a, a universal symbol of protection, of guidance there. So what I want you to do is to, in your own consciousness, See yourself as a lighthouse, a lighthouse within generating that light within your own self, within your own being. 
and also to be the projection of light for all of those that are around you in your family and your community and those that are passing in the night and trying to find their way to say for the call in the safety okay and assurance no matter no matter if it's stormy seas or if it's calm or there's moonlight or it's dark or if it's a sunny day and it's the beautiful wind is blowing but that that lighthouse be that lighthouse within yourself to be the, the center within the storm no matter what happens the resolve that you carry within you will carry you through no matter what and when you project that light that light will return onto you it'll be a gift both directions take care amen i love that be the light be the light and shine it bright yeah. well this conversation is seems like it's just the appetizer for another conversation I really would love to next time get more into the sustainability and bioregions. Uh, it's been really enlightening to talk about the effects on our children and what we can do and how we ourselves can wake up. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, it's an honor to be on the show too. So, Thank you, Bruce. So, um, Wow, you have such a vast background. I'm I'm just wondering in these last few minutes what would you say is the high point where you're pointing us? Would it be that meditation or well, where would you point us so that we can further deepen our understanding of our connection to this earth and I would say to any of your listener, you are the, you, every one of you, are an act of divine creation. Discover the light within your own self, and that let that light be your guidance from here on. Because within you, everything is there is, and the potential you have is enormous, all of you. Whew. I can feel into that. I can definitely feel into that. All that is within us. That's where we all are right now. Mm -hmm. It's looking and turning our direction to what is all that is within us. What is it will last beyond the illusion? And what is it that will give meaning to our moment-by-moment -moment existence? I think this is a good time for us all to, in, in a sense of unity, in a sense of understanding, in a sense of compassion, to align our vision and hold that those who are leading us forward into the future in the world, whether it's in the United States or around the world, that we vision that we are the lighthouse and we are shining that light. Thank you, Bruce. And thank You're you welcome. to our wonderful audience.